92.3 FM W222CD Louisville and 106.9 WVEZ FM HD2 St. Matthews Louisville, a pure radio station. Hello, welcome to The Word Diet on the Pure Radio Network. My name is Eric Schonsberg. My goal with this show is to help people read and understand the amazing Word of God. The show is named for my latest project, The Word Diet, which is reading a chapter a day for a year from the Bible to understand the arc of the scriptures. The Word Diet is good for a devotional, but ideally it's done in groups or at least with partners to get that accountability. That's so helpful. It's fine for seasoned Bible readers. Uh, I know a lot of people using it as a devotional, but really my top goal is that this would be used by novices and strugglers. People have had trouble reading the Word before. More information is available about the project at thoroughlyequipped.org. If you know some people that have had a hard time reading the Bible or you're looking for a good introduction for others to help them uh, start reading the Bible, please consider the Word Diet at thoroughlyequipped.org. For the radio show, we're in the book of Revelation, which is a challenging book, but a great book, understandable and applicable, especially if you get a little bit of help from someone like me. My goal with the show is the same as the book, to encourage you to read and help you understand the Bible, so please read along with us before, during, and after listening to the show. Last week, we uh, did Revelation 14, and that completed a section in the middle of Revelation called the Seven Pictures of Revelation. So we've had the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven thunders get passed over, and nobody talks about those. Then the seven pictures, and today we get to the seven seals, or seven bowls, rather, in Revelation 15 and 16. 15 is an introductory chapter, and then 16, the action really gets rolling as the bowls of God's wrath are poured out. Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for the opportunity to read through the scriptures and study them and mine them for just a fraction of what they have for us today. We thank you for your word, your love letter to us. We thank you for the book of Revelation in particular and how it uh, can inspire us to hope, uh, understanding your sovereignty, your power, your perfect justice, and your love for us. Lord, we pray that it would give us hope and inspire us to live lives that bring you honor and glory today and always. In Jesus' name, amen. Please pray for the Pure Radio Network, this station, and this show. We'll take a break before we get rolling. Stay tuned. We'll be back in a minute. Dependable, trustworthy, Pure Radio at 92.3 FM and 106.9 FM HD2. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're in Revelation 15 and 16 today, and we'll take care of uh, chapter 15 yeah, in this first segment. It's an introduction to chapter 16, which is more famous. So 15 gets skipped over quite a bit, but we're not skipping anything. So we're going to go ahead and talk about chapter 15. I'll read it, and it's eight verses to get us started. Verse 1, I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign, seven angels with the seven last plagues. Last, because with them God's wrath is completed. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass mixed with fire and standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and over the number of his name. They held harps given them by God and sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the ages. 
Who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this I looked, and in heaven the temple, that is the tabernacle of the testimony, was opened. Out of the temple came the seven angels with the seven plagues. They were dressed in clean, shining linen and wore golden sashes around their chests. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. Okay, there are many familiar themes and pictures in this chapter. We'll try to point those out as we go along. First thing is right there in verse 1, that the seven last plagues and, and plagues and bowls are used interchangeably until we get to chapter 16. Um, it, it reads as if it's chronological, right? It's last because with them God's wrath is completed. The problem with that is what we've done until now, and if you haven't heard previous shows, they're available on SoundCloud and Spotify under the Word Diet. Uh, what I've been arguing, and I think what is pretty clear, is these are cycles of judgment. So probably the best way to read this verse, then, is that it's the picture of God's wrath is completed with the three cycles. And remember, the number three denotes perfection. And so three cycles of judgment would be perfect judgment. As we'll talk about in 16, there's also been an escalation of judgment, um, which is leading to perfection. The seals had a judgment on one-fourth. The trumpets had one-third, and now the bowls are judging all. And so there's a sense in which it's being completed in that way as well. Verse 2, we have a sea of glass mixed with fire. Sea of glass was in chapter 4, verse 6, when we got a look at the throne room in heaven. Mixed with fire, of course, that's a metaphor used or a picture used throughout Scripture, uh, including Revelation. So the combination here, uh, the sea of glass would be strength and the extent of purity the fire would probably indicate judgment. So you've got purity mixed with judgment. And then if you picture this, it's pretty cool. If you think about a sea of glass mixed with fire, that's reminiscent of the sun setting over the waters. And that's kind of what's happening here. We're reaching sunset, so to speak, on uh, earth in terms of the, uh, the flow of history. Uh, Verse 2 continues, standing next to that, those who had been victorious over the beast, his image, and his name's number. So reminiscent of chapter 12, verse 11, the great verse, they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. And then the reference to the name's number, of course, takes us back to the number and the mark of the beast in chapter 13, verse 18. Again, going back to what we did last week, You know, I think a huge mistake people make in Revelation is they read the mark of the beast and they don't read just one more verse. Chapter 14, verse 1 puts a completely different context on the mark of the beast, as we talked about last week. So again, you know, think about big picture here in Revelation. We've had these sets and cycles of judgment, but every time what's emphasized in the middle of those is victory. And again, that's happening here in verse 2. Verse 2 ends with a reference to harps. We've seen a couple of those, three of those actually in Revelation. And the singing of the Song of Moses, referenced in verses 3 and 4. And that's a type of uh, Exodus uh, Exodus 15 and Deuteronomy 32. Those are a couple chapters I'd recommend 
this week, um, if you want to get up on the Song of Moses and the parallels here. And then we have a Song of the Lamb. And so, in essence, we have a Song of Deliverance with many Old Testament references as history is coming to its conclusion. The preterists have a nice reference here. Remember, they're the ones who see a lot of Revelation being fulfilled in the destruction of the temple by the Romans in 70 AD. They note that back in chapter 11, verse 8, that Jerusalem and Israel at that time has been identified as Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. That's Revelation 11:8. And so again, they connect this to their belief that Jerusalem is being judged. And so uh, remember that last reference in chapter 14, verse 20, with the judgment and the blood flowing like wild. And again, they see this as Christians uh, being delivered from Jerusalem at its destruction. Verses 3 and 4 exalt uh, God's great and marvelous. Verse 4 has righteous deeds and then his just and true ways. Uh, if you think about it, I mean, that's really important that God's ways are true and just. We've had all this discussion about judgment. We're getting to the final judgment. And so if his ways are not just and true, uh, we got a problem. So underlining that here in the song is uh, wonderful. Uh, verse 3 labels him as the Lord God Almighty, King of the Ages, which is a cool phrase. I think it's the only time it appears in the New Testament. It is similar to 1 Timothy 1.17 where it says, Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And then uh, the passage in Revelation also calls him Lord. Barclay notes that nothing here is said about their own victorious lives. And so the focus here is completely on God. Barclay observes, Heaven is a place where men forget themselves and remember only God. And that's certainly true of the worship here in chapter 15. Probably more intriguing is the reference in verse 4 to non-Christians fearing and worshiping God. Verse 4 opens with the rhetorical question about fearing God. How could you not fear him? Verse 4 continues with you alone are holy and then all nations will come and worship before you for your righteous acts have been revealed. And so it's intriguing to think about uh, non-Christians fearing and worshiping God, trying to figure out what that looks like. You know, in the Old Testament, we find a number of references to this. Actually, there's a lot. And if you're curious, I can send you a whole litany of verses from my notes on this, but I do want to read a few of them. Psalm 66, 1 through 4, shout for joy to God, all the earth, sing the glory of his name, make his praise glorious. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds, so great is your power. Your enemies cringe before you. All the earth bows down to you. They sing praise to you. They sing the praises of your name. And, you know, maybe this is hyperbole, Old Testament and New Testament, but uh, really interesting that enemies cringe. The, all the earth bows down to you. Or Psalm 86, verses 8 through 10. Among the gods, there is none like you, Lord. No deeds can compare with yours. All the nations you have made will come and worship before you, Lord. They will bring glory to your name, for you are great and do marvelous deeds. You alone are God. A very similar passage in Isaiah 66, too long to get into, but the last bit of Isaiah, which sets up the New Testament so nicely, has language very much like this. And then one of my name will be great among the nations, from where the sun rises to where it sets. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to me, because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. 
So the references to the sun, the incense, the offerings, his name being great among the nations. Again, references that are very similar to what we see here. Of course, the closest New Testament reference we have to this is the famous passage in Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place, speaking of Christ, and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. How much of this is hyperbole? Should this just simply be read as everyone's going to bow, whether or not you go to heaven or not, uh, even in judgment? The people who are judged and don't want to be with God and his people for eternity, maybe they still bow as well. So we're not quite sure how that works out, but there's so many passages, uh, especially in the Old Testament, but even in the New Testament, Philippians and here in Revelation that indicate something like this. And so we don't fully understand it, but it's in there. Let's make sure we get the big picture here, right? What is this supposed to do for John's audience? What is it supposed to do for us? And it's that worshiping God and his righteousness and his judgment and his wrath should lead to perseverance, character, and hope, especially in the face of persecution. As Paul writes in Romans 5, 3 through 5, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So especially in the midst of suffering and persecution, right? The bottom line to Paul in Romans 5 is hope. And so Romans also is a book of hope, even though the word's not in there. It's a book of great hope. One commentator writes about this. There are times of helplessness in every life, times when the powers of evil have control and there are no resources left to us. They will know from their own experience how the beast makes war on the saints. In the face of such an unmitigated and sinister force, they will understand, perhaps for the first time, why the picture of God pouring bowls of wrath upon all manifestations of the beast is an occasion for rejoicing. I think for one talent Christians, this is a problem. We don't see very much of persecution and suffering in many cases. And so passages like this just don't really resonate with us. But if you've had much more suffering and persecution, then a passage like this leads to worship and worship to hope. Again, it's worth noting that worship is at the very heart of Revelation. We saw that in chapters 4 and 5, the pivotal chapters in the books of Revelation, which again are often ignored, but easy to read. Make sure you've read Revelation 4 and 5. Remember, too, the prayers have led to the seals and the trumpets back in chapter 5, verse 8, and chapter 8, verse 3. And now it's worship, our worship that leads to the bowls. All right, verse 5, in the heavenly temple, the tabernacle of the testimony was opened. So that's the home of God's covenant, the ark, the law, and God's presence. Verse 6, seven angels emerged from the temple, coming out from where the law rests which implies no one's going to be able to defy this. And they come out with the seven plagues. They're wearing clean, shining linen. We'll see that again here in chapter 19, verse 8, to describe the church. It's a picture of purity and victory. And they have golden sashes around their chest. We saw that back in chapter 1, verse 13 of Christ. Uh, The sashes were for royalty and for priests. And the priest will be preparing a sacrifice shortly in chapter 19, verse 17. 
Uh, uh, so we'll, maybe that's a good picture, uh, an appropriate picture, and to connect it to the priests. Verse 7, they're handed the golden bowls that are filled with God's wrath. Second Thessalonians 1, 8 and 9, he will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. And so the four living creatures hand out the bowls. Remember the four living creatures, we saw them back in chapter 4, they were introduced there. Uh, the four, the number there represents nature, and here nature is giving itself to God's service. The word for filled, as in filled with God's wrath, is the Greek word teleos, which is the same as when Christ says, it is finished. Herschel Hobbes observes that God can say he's had it with individuals and world systems at any time. And so maybe we think about the fall of communism as an example. God just snaps his fingers and then suddenly it's over. And so for earthly judgments uh, throughout history, uh, knocking out the Babylonians or knocking out communism, or at the end of time, there's going to be a point where it is finished, right? Filled with God's wrath, teleos, it is finished. The golden bowls were filled with incense. We saw that back in chapter 5, verse 8. Uh, with our prayers. So there's a possibility of connecting our prayers in chapter 5, verse 8, with golden bowls and incense to what's happening here with God's wrath. And that's a pretty intriguing thought. Verse 8, the temple is filled with smoke from the glory and power of God. Smoke indicates man's ability, inability to see God's purposes fully. And then verse 8 ends with nobody could enter it until the plagues were completed. Three things to say here. Yeah, it's a, definitely a picture of, hey, nobody's coming in until the job's done. All evil must first be destroyed. Second, I think we can look at this more broadly as no man's going to interfere with God's plans. And third, it's possible to look at some more literal interpretations here. Uh, Matthew Henry, for example, sees in this the disruption of the last days, which might cause chaos so that community worship, which is being pictured in part here, would be difficult. Okay, we'll come back uh, after the break with Revelation 16's performance of the seven bowls of wrath. We've had their preparation here in 15. We'll get to their presentation in 16. In the meantime, please become uh, consider becoming a P3 partner at pureradio.org. Spread the word about Pure Radio, this station, and this show. We'll be back in a minute. Pure Radio, reaching all of Kentuckiana with the pure gospel of Jesus. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're in Revelation 15 and 16 this week. And in the first segment, we talked about Revelation 15. So that gets us to 16, which is the seven bowls of wrath. 15 was an introduction to the seven bowls. 16 is actually serving up the bowls of wrath. A couple of things to say before we dig into the passage. Uh, the first thing we'll see is there are heavy parallels to the trumpets so remember, you have the three cycles of judgment. You have the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls. And there are parallels with all three, but especially heavy parallels with the trumpets. In particular, we see a big reference to the plagues uh, of Egypt in the book of Exodus. Same sorts of sins, same sorts of punishments. Very similar there. There are some key distinctions. I think the two biggest are that here, where we had one-third uh, judged under the trumpets, all will be judged here. And with the trumpets, we saw Satan ascending, and now we see Satan falling. And so 
Satan certainly ascends in power, or there's a picture of him um, being powerful and God's work with us when he is powerful. But here he is being uh, clearly defeated. Along those lines, Richard Baucom argues that the second half of Revelation is focused on institutions and uh, systems. So another difference here is the judgment here is not so much directly at people. It's more a judgment of systems and institutions, and people are being harmed as a byproduct. Now, the different schools of thought in Revelation, uh, not big surprises here if you've been following along. The historicists continue to see this as judgment against papal Rome, Rome and the Catholic Church. The partial preterists uh, continue to see this as the Roman Empire. And the futurists look at something into the future. It's interesting that after chapter 16, if we read it as the futurists do, then Christ is going to return in a few chapters to a wasteland populated by uh, a set of straggling survivors. Tim LaHaye uh, says it is unlikely that half a billion people will still be living on the planet when Jesus Christ returns, uh, as an example. Last comment before we get rolling is that when we think bowls, at least I think of a cereal bowl, uh, but it's also possible that the bowls are different. For example, the King James Version translates this as a vial, um, V-I-A-L. And so it's possible that it's a longer, narrower vessel. Uh, David Chilton actually argues for a, a chalice, like a wine chalice, as in the wine of God's wrath and it being received as a negative sacrament. And I like that a lot because it really parallels uh, the context of what we've seen uh, in chapter 14, verse 10, and the wine of God's wrath. So it doesn't matter a lot, I guess, but if you're trying to picture this, um, you know, a cereal bowl is probably your first, your go-to, but uh, maybe thinking of it, of it as a wine chalice is more appropriate. All right, I'm going to read verses 1 through 9, which is the first four bowls, and this is judgment on man and his life support system. Uh, again, this parallels the trumpets and seals and that the first four are on nature. Creation is groaning because of the sin of man, and creation is being harmed, and it causes damage to mankind. Starting in verse 1, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple, saying to the seven angels, Go, pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. The first angel went and poured out his bowl on the land, and ugly and painful sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it turned into blood like that of a dead man, and every th living thing in the sea died. The third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. Then I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, You are just in these judgments, you who are and who were the Holy One, because you have so judged. For they have shed the blood of your saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. And I heard the altar respond, Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and the sun was given power to scorch people with fire. They were seared by the intense heat, and they cursed the name of God who had control over these plagues. But they refused to repent and glorify him. So hopefully you caught the uh, references to nature throughout there, and we'll pick up the details here as we tear this passage apart. Verse 1, uh, probably God here commands the angels to go and pour out the bowls of wrath. 
Uh, verse 2 is the first bowl. It's poured on the land, resulting in ugly and painful sores. So back to Exodus, reminiscent of the sixth plague. There are also some interesting references promising judgment on Israel in Deuteronomy 28, verses 27 and 35. And of course, when you think of ugly and painful sores, you're also thinking about the last couple of um, problems that Job encounters in chapter 2 of that great book. Uh, But all this is poured on non-Christians. Matthew Henry observes they had marked themselves by their sin. Now God marks them out by his judgments. The possibilities here are that either all Christians are gone or God is protecting them from this plague. And again, there's precedent for the latter because of Israel and Egypt and the plagues. Many of the plagues were delivered on Egypt with Israel in close proximity. Or maybe think in New Testament terms about the sheep and the goats of Matthew 25. Uh, Either way works fine. The Preterists imagine this is an epidemic in Jerusalem as it's being besieged by the Romans in 70 AD. The Futurists see this as radioactive pollution, as an example. And the Historicists read this figuratively as external manifestations of internal corruption within the Catholic Church around the time of the Reformation. Verse 3 has a second bowl poured on the sea, turning it into dead blood and killing everything in it. So again, remarkable destruction. Remember from previous shows, we've talked about how the sea often represents Gentiles, and it also represents sustenance and commerce. Similar to the first plague in the time of Egypt, although of course that was the rivers, but the connection to commerce uh, is another connection to the first plague in the time of Egypt in the book of Exodus. Verse 4, the third bowl is poured on the rivers and springs, turning them into blood. A clear reference to the first plague in the book of Exodus. And You know, there's a perversion or destruction here of all life-giving things. Rivers and springs are supposed to bring life, but instead they're bringing death. Then after the first three bowls, we have this three-verse parentheses in verses 5 through 7. The water angel and the altar pronounce God's perfect judgment and justice. So some interesting references here. First of all, God in verse 5 is described as you who are and who were. And what verb tense is missing here? Well, the future tense. And we've talked about this before. It either means that we're at the end of time or it's so certain, right, that you might as well write about it as if it's in the present sense. But again, interesting that we, we usually get God who was, who is, and who is to come. But this is the first of a or this is uh, the second time at least that we've seen the dropping of the future tense. Verse 5 also has a tautology. You are just in these judgments because you have so judged, right? We assume that God is perfectly just. Now, there's evidences for that, but he's just in his judgments because he has judged. We saw another tautology like this in chapter 11, verse 17. Because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign, right? That these things go hand in hand. When God is perfectly powerful, perfectly just, that's where we end up. Verse 6 is a wonderful verse, uh, basically the reason for the judgment, it's blood for blood. The, the punishment fits the crime. The Greek word here means scales and balances, and so the, the justice is perfect, and that blood is given for blood. 
historicists see Christian martyrs of the papacy in the same time frame. Uh, of course, uh, futurists are looking into the future. The preterists uh, look at the verses in the Old and New Testament where Jerusalem had been charged with the same sort of crimes. The very end of Second Chronicles, chapter 36, verses 15 and 16 on the fall of Jerusalem, starts with, The Lord, the God of their ancestors, sent word to them through his messengers again and again, because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked God's messengers, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people, and there was no remedy. And of course, part of that uh, treatment of God's messengers, the prophets, was, was killing them. We read about that in the New Testament as well, explicitly from Jesus, Luke 13, verses 33 and 34, referring to himself as well. He says, in any case, I must press on today and tomorrow and the next day, for surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Or think of Stephen's martyrdom speech in Acts 7, verse 52. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, and now you have betrayed and murdered him. Then verses 8 and 9 pick back up with the bowls. Uh, The fourth bowl is in verses 8 and 9. It's poured out on the sun, scorching, searing people with fire and intense heat. You know, it's interesting that back in chapter 8, verse 12, the sun was pictured as quenched. So again, we have references to apocalyptic literature and, uh, you know, colorful references to God coming in judgment, coming uh, and intervening in in the... um, in the events of uh, man, the happenings of man. Uh, and so the sun quenched on the one hand, the sun here going the opposite direction. The futurists read this uh, relatively literally. Um, not surprisingly, they go with an intense solar flare, ozone depletion, or nuclear war. The historicists, uh, of course, go figurative here. They imagine a great leader, uh, for example, Napoleon, or this is a reference to general papal power. In the Catholic Church. And the preterists, of course, see this as the tyranny of Rome, but they also see it as a, a reversal of blessing to shade Israel. God had promised to be a shade to Israel, and so if Israel and Jerusalem is being judged in 70 AD, it's a reversal of that blessing. Deuteronomy 28:22. the Lord will strike you with wasting disease, with fever and inflammation, with scorching heat and drought, with blight and mildew, which will plague you until you perish. In any case, believers are being protected from this, or will be at least in heaven. Revelation 7, 16, never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat upon them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That's how the parenthesis in chapter 7 ends. So the sun usually sustains life here. Of course, it's ironic that it is used by God to destroy life. Now, what's the people's response to all this? Well, the people here curse God and refuse to repent and glorify him. This happens three times in this passage. We'll see this again in verses 11 and 21. And it's in stark contrast to the repentance that we saw back in chapter 11, 
verse 13. Remember there, uh, John writes through Christ, Christ writes through John, rather. At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. And so again, we have this um, theme going on throughout Revelation that when these events are occurring, right, whether we're looking at the preterists or the historicist moving through time or the futurist at the very end of time, all three are true. What are people's responses going to be? And here, it's cursing God, refusing to repent, refusing to glorify him. William Barclay says, men who had no doubt of the existence of God and even saw his hand in events, but they still went on their own way. They see God's hand in it, but still refuse to follow. One last observation that's kind of cool. Matthew Henry sees these four as the common people, the leaders, their underlings, right? The difference between the ocean and the rivers, and then Rome as the sun. So that's uh, sort of an interesting way to read this as well. You can see how the historicists tend to go figurative with the language here. All right, we're going to take a break here. Uh, if you're on Facebook, like Pure Radio and befriend me there. Uh, if you're looking for old uh, versions of the show, uh, earlier parts of Revelation, the podcasts are available on Facebook. I put them up there weekly. SoundCloud has all of them. Spotify has all of them under the word diet. Feel free to interact with me on Facebook with your questions and comments. We'll be back in a minute. Become a P3 Partner. P3 Partners are pure radio listeners who pray for pure radio each day, provide financial support to our programmers, promote pure radio by telling others about us and sharing us on Facebook. Ready to get started? Go to pureradio.org and click on the P3 Partners button and register. P3 Partners have privileges. Get books, DVDs, CDs, devotional materials, invitation-only access to Pure Radio events, and other experience opportunities only available to P3 Partners. Pray, provide, and promote Pure Radio. Become a P3 Partner today. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're in Revelation 15 and 16 this week on the seven bowls of God's wrath. And coming into the third segment, we're into the fifth and sixth bowls, with, which are judgment on spiritual powers. And again, this parallels the fifth and sixth trumpet of Revelation 9. I'll read in verse 10, the, the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and his kingdom was plunged into darkness. Men gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, but they refused to repent of what they had done. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Then I saw three evil spirits that looked like frogs. They came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. They are spirits of demons performing miraculous signs, and they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for the battle on the great day of God Almighty. Behold, I come like a thief. Blessed is he who stays awake and keeps his clothes with him, so that he may not go naked and be shamefully exposed." Then they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Okay, so the fifth bowl, verses 10 and 11, is poured on the beast's throne, plunging his kingdom into darkness. The darkness is a reference to the ninth plague in uh, the book of Exodus. And it's also a direct reference to the question we saw at the end of chapter 13, verse 4. Who is like the beast who can make war against him? 
Well, God Almighty can. We have a reference to the throne of the beast, which is interesting. The other reference here is chapter 2, verse 13. Revelation has 42 references to throne, and 40 of those uh, are gods, but two of them are uh, the beast and Satan back in chapter 2, verse 13. Darkness uh, can be taken as physical darkness or mental or spiritual darkness. Figuratively, uh, if you're reading this as human power and the state, which is how we read the first beast, this would be a power vacuum or political turmoil. However you read it, uh, clearly it's illustrating God's limits, uh, the limits he's placed on Satan. Men gnaw their tongues in agony, again cursing God and refusing to repent, as we saw back in chapter 16, verse 9, and we'll see again in verse 21. Okay, the sixth bowl, verses 12 through 16, is pretty famous. Uh, It's poured on the great river Euphrates, and it dries it up. We saw a reference to the Euphrates back in chapter 9, verse 14, where it said uh, the sixth angel there with the sixth trumpet released the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the sixth trumpet, again, has a parallel in the sixth bowl. This is reminiscent of Isaiah 11, a messianic chapter, verses 15 and 16. It says, The Lord will dry up the gulf of the Egyptian sea. With a scorching wind, he will sweep his hand over the Euphrates River. He will break it up into seven streams so that anyone can cross over in sandals. There will be a highway for the remnant of his people that is left from Assyria as there was for Israel when they came up from Egypt. So that's a nice passage with some historical references uh, to the return from exile, Israel coming up out of Egypt, and again, looking forward to Revelation, uh, a picture of God's judgment at the end of time. From Israel's perspective, right, the Euphrates is what would separate it from the east. And so to break that, uh, to to make the Euphrates into a a stream is a, a really interesting picture, basically of breaking down walls. Uh, If it's taken more literally, then you need a dam or an earthquake. And so the more literal readers uh, look for something like that or predict something like that. If it's figurative, uh, we're looking at unrepentant man's um, heart uh, and their dry hearts. And so this is certainly what Pharaoh did as well. Uh, Elsewhere, the Euphrates and drying up rivers and the like is a picture of God's incredible power. Again, Exodus 14 and the Red Sea, Joshua 3, and the Jordan River. And then a great passage in Jeremiah 51, verses 36 and 37. Therefore, this is what the Lord says, See, I will defend your cause and avenge you. I will dry up her sea and make her springs dry. Babylon will be a heap of ruins, a haunt of jackals, an object of horror and scorn, a place where no one lives. So again, drying up the sea, making the springs dry, used as a metaphor for God's power and judgment. So it's used as a picture of God's sovereignty. Here it seems to be more about um, removing barriers which would prevent the Antichrist from exercising full power. And so um, it could just be God's sovereignty over that. Uh, We're not really sure. But the reference to the Euphrates is certainly used uh, mostly of God and his incredible power. The other historical reference here that's really cool is that when Cyrus and Persia sacked Babylon, they did so by diverting and drying up the Euphrates River. And uh, the river would come in under the city walls, but if you divert the river, then you basically have a free tunnel with easy access into a city by going underneath its walls. 
turning that riverbed into a dry road. And so that's part of the story of how Babylon was sacked. Again, uh, John's readers would have remembered that history and thought of that when the great river Euphrates was being dried up. Now back to verse 12, all of this is to prepare the way for the kings from the east. So this is literally or figuratively kings or powers who gather, or actually to be more accurate, verses 14 and 16, they are gathered for the battle, which is interesting. They think they're gathering, uh, but they're really being gathered for the battle, gathered by God's sovereignty. God's going to work all of this out. And verse 14 describes this as being done on the great day of God. Again, reminiscent of Psalm 2, which I've read a few times here uh, on the show, verses 1 through 6, why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. And speaking of mountains, that takes us to verse 16 in the reference to Armageddon, uh, which can either be translated or understood as the mountain of Megiddo, although there is no mountain with that name, or the city of Megiddo, which is a city at the pass between the coastal plains of Palestine and the plain of Estrelan. Uh, we'll see this again at the end of chapter 19 in the decisive battle. And this area had been the site of decisive battles in ancient times. That's where Deborah and Barak fight in Judges 5. It's uh, where Yehu and Ahaziah battle in 2 Kings 9. It's where Josiah dies in 2 Kings 23, verse 29. If you take this as a literal reference, it can't be big enough. Uh, you have to read it as maybe the hub of a larger campaign if you're looking for a specific geographical reference. There's just way too many troops for everything to be fought on a single mountain. But usually it's understood figuratively that Armageddon is used often in apocalyptic and it, struggle, it symbolizes struggle, warfare, and destruction. You might think of a reference like Waterloo today. Uh, you know, we, said, uh, we say of Napoleon, uh, we use Waterloo to talk about today, you know, so-and-so met his Waterloo. And we mean it as a reference, a figurative reference to defeat. And so that's much how Armageddon could be used here to symbolize struggle, warfare, and destruction. And then in verse 13, we have three evil spirits, and they look like frogs. Again, is it literal or figurative? How far do we take this? Again, at least a reference to the second plague. Uh, to a Jewish sensibility, this would have been an unclean animal. And frogs are famous for repetitive and empty croaking, uh, which was used to symbolize meaningless and futile speech. Preterists note that Egypt had been judged with natural frogs, frogs and Israel as the new Egypt here was being judged by supernatural frogs. Verse 13 continues that they came out of the mouths of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. And of course, that begs question is, is who is the false prophet and which beast are we talking about? But we've been given some hints and we'll be given some more later uh, that it's clear that the false prophet is a representation of the second beast. Now, first of all, as we talked about, the, the second beast is false religion. Verse 14, we have the spirits of demons performing miraculous signs. That's what you would expect uh, false religion to do. 
We've got chapter 19, verse 20, where we're told about it explicitly. So that means the reference to the beast here is that first beast from Revelation 13. And again, with the dragon, we're back to the evil trinity that we had back in Revelation 12 and 13. We've got the dragon, the beast, first beast, and the second beast uh, here de described as the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. Tim LaHaye, as a prominent futurist, sees uh, someone coming with Jewish descent and someone who would act as what he describes as the Antichrist primary minister of propaganda. The historicists uh, see these three as paganism, papacy, and Islam, and uh, they would connect the false prophet to Muhammad. So that's an interesting historical reference. And then finally, verse 15, a uh, little parentheses here in the middle of the sixth bowl, Christ's warning that he would come like a thief and they should be prepared or else. And of course, we see this theme throughout the New Testament. Uh, again, some part of the church is present, though exempted from what's happening here. And uh, the broader you know, picture here is that it implies our need to trust God deeply during these times and any time when life is really difficult, persecution, suffering, and the like. I will take our last break here. Please consider becoming a P3 partner at pureradio.org to pray, provide, and promote the work of this ministry within God's kingdom. Please spread the word about Pure Radio, this station, and this show. Back in a minute. Pure Radio, reaching all of Kentuckiana with the pure gospel of Jesus. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're in Revelation 15 and 16 today, and in our last segment, we'll get to the seventh bowl of wrath. We'll read verses 17 through 21. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, It is done. Then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since man has been on earth. So tremendous was the quake. The great city split into three parts, and the cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Every island fled away and the mountains could not be found. From the sky, huge hailstones of about a hundred pounds each fell upon men and they cursed God on account of the plague of hail because the plague was so terrible. So here we have the judgment on man's great city named as Babylon and all that Babylon represents. Again, very similar to the seventh trumpet at the end of chapter 11. So it starts with verse 17, that the judgment is poured into the air. So this could be literal or figurative for the final all-encompassing plague, completely crushing life. Or it could also be figurative for the destruction uh, that's poured out on or of Satan and his kingdom, given the reference in Ephesians 2.2, where Paul writes, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. 17 continues that it's preceded by a loud voice from the throne saying, it is done. Again, language like Christ on the cross. Uh, here, judgment and or history is finished and fully manifested. Uh, historicists and futurists, as you might imagine, see this as uh, a prophecy about the judgment on Rome, uh, either the city or Rome as a representation, or uh, Rome as a representation for the Catholic Church, as in the case of the historicists. 
18 through 21, we get a, a wide range of supernatural effects. We have noise in verse 18, lightning, rumblings, thunder, uh, the worst ever earthquake. And for John's readers, that would have been impressive because the first century had been a notable one for earthquakes. Verse 20 has islands and mountains fleeing. I'm guessing that's figurative. Uh, 21, you have the 100-pound hailstones. 100 pounds is literally one talent. And, of course, this uh, lines up with the seventh plague in the book of Exodus. And we see it in Joshua 10 as God uses it as a weapon in one of Joshua's battles in the Promised Land. Uh, preterists see this as uh, connecting to devastation in Jerusalem in 70 AD. You've got the Old Covenant, New Covenant. And then the finished reference they see is Christ on the cross. Uh, they also cite Josephus's account of 100-pound catapult stones. So that's an interesting historical reference. And then 19 is really interesting. The earthquake splits the great city, probably Babylon, especially with what's coming next, uh, chapter 17 and 18, into three parts. And that was a, a figurative reference to divine judgment, right? So three is a number of perfection. Splitting it is a picture of judgment, destruction, and it collapses these other cities. The Preterists cite Ezekiel 5, 1 through 12, really interesting passage here uh, with Jerusalem, uh, that Babylon was prophesied in Ezekiel 5 as being cut into three parts. And it's also interesting that Jerusalem under Roman siege had divided into three roughly equal warring factions. So the Preterists get very excited about this early part of verse 19. And then the last half of verse 19, God remembers Babylon the Great, so getting explicit about Babylon, and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. And again, that connects us back to chapter 14, verse 10, and it looks forward to chapter 17 and 18 uh, with the judgment on Babylon, particularly chapter 18, verse 6, give back to her as she has given, pay her back double for what she has done, mix her a double portion from her own cup. And then 21 ends with the people again for the third time in this chapter, cursing God since the plagues were so terrible. You know, again, in the book of Exodus, you have signs of repentance from uh, the people, not just the Israelites uh, following God, but the, the Egyptians repenting at God's you know, powerful, miraculous moves in nature and in history. And we saw repentance in Revelation 11.13, but the response here in 16 has been uniformly negative, cursing, failing to repent, not interested in going along with in the same direction as uh, the great God of our universe. So three passages I wanted to read to you uh, that connect to this and I think help uh, ground it in a you know Christian worldview as we go forward. What, what does Revelation do for us, right? So we have what's for John's audience, but as we read this today, where does it take us? Haggai chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, right, prophesied of the Messiah. Uh, the prophet writes there, this is what the Lord Almighty says, in a little while I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations, and what is desired by all nations will come, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. In the time of uh, the post-exile uh, Israel, in the time before Jesus, right, the Lord is prophesying an earthquake of sorts, right? I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land, and I'm going to send Jesus. He's the desired of all the nations. 
I'm going to fill this house, this temple with glory. And it's ultimately fulfilled in the Jesus that we worship, the Jesus who is the uh, most awesome manifestation of God's grace, who indwells us through the Spirit to live lives of purpose and meaning. Or look back for Israel, Joel 3.16, the Lord will roar from Zion and thunder from Jerusalem. The earth and the heavens will tremble, but the Lord will be a refuge for his people, a stronghold for the people of Israel. Right. So looking back further, that God had been that for his people coming out of Egypt. God had been that and would be that for his people, for his faithful remnant, and as they are taken into exile, right? His faithful people, God will be a refuge for them despite the earth and the heavens trembling. And then finally, Hebrews 12, 26 through 29, again, looking to our current moment and looking forward to the end of the story as we have seen and will continue to see it depicted in Revelation, but it's talked about elsewhere. And Hebrews 12 is a great passage. Verse 26, at that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. Quoting Haggai 2.6, by the way, the words once more indicating the removing of what can be shaken, that is created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. And so the writer of Hebrews uses some logic there to interpret Haggai as a fulfillment of then prophecy in Jesus, but then something that would come later in the second coming and in the kingdom of God through his spirit. Verse 28, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. Look at the verb tense of of 28. We are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. There's the already and the not yet of God's kingdom. We have received it in large part through the resurrection, the crucifixion, the resurrection, Pentecost. God's kingdom is expanding. It cannot be shaken. And what's the response the writer of Hebrews gives us? Let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, right? this, This fact should change the way we live our lives, right? Even if things are being shaken around us, we are in a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Finally, let's think big picture with Revelation, right? So where are we going? Where's this wrapping up? What what do the seven bowls of wrath and this um, today's discussion set up for us as we go to the end? Well, verse 15 of chapter 16 was be alert, right? Behold, I come like a thief. Blessed is he who stays awake. And so we need to be ready. We need to be ready. And that's talked about uh, by Jesus in uh, Matthew 24 and 25. It's talked about in Acts 1. It's, it's all over the place. And so we're ready. We're looking, we're anticipating with hope the, the, final, uh, the final end of things, right? Whether it's us going to heaven uh, through death or whether it's God coming in final judgment through Christ's second coming. And where are we going next? Well, after chapter 16, uh, we change gears. Revelation 17 and 18 is the judgment of Babylon in great detail. But with that, again, it's not just for judgment's sake. It's a call to Christians reading this, hearing this, to come out of Babylon. And so we'll talk about that next week. Revelation 19 and 20 is the wedding of the Lamb and the final judgment. That's that ultimate resolution. And then finally, chapters 21 and 22, heaven and our perspective of heaven, and again, a call to live as if heaven matters, right? To repent, to, be, to get into the kingdom of heaven, and then to live as if heaven is real. 
Lord, we want to walk in the goodness of your kingdom. We want to walk in light of the certainty of history that we know how it's going to end. We are receiving, we will ultimately receive a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Lord, help us to walk that way whether we're distracted by the mundane events of life or whether we're suffering through persecution uh, or other forms of difficulty. Lord, help us focus our eyes on you, the author and perfecter of our salvation. Help us to walk courageously, knowing that you will wrap up history in such a beautiful, powerful way. It's been good to be with you this week, Lord, uh, Lord and uh, this audience, and uh, we look forward to what you have for us uh, in the weeks to come. All right, that does it for today. We hope to catch you the next time on The Word Diet.